Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. And last week we began this series called Image, and we specifically focused on Imago Day, the image of God that God made man in his image. And I told you, we were created to reflect the glory of God. We are to be God's mirror image. Today I want to talk to you on the subject, let us make God in our image. I didn't say it wrong. Let us make God in our image. Church, in order for me to preach this message with clarity and boldness today, I need you to have thick skin. I I really do. I need you to toughen up. I want you to look at somebody next to you and say, be tough. No, 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 no. No, listen, because that person sitting next to you, they're going to miss everything that I say because they're going to get offended by one thing that I say. I need you to look at the person next to you and say, be tough. Tell them like you mean it. Amen. Be tough. Church, I'm letting you know, we're not sipping on milk today. We're eating meat. We're eating tough meat too. It's going to take some chewing to get this down and digest it. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to get through it together. and We're going to be better on the other side of this. So if you are easily offended, this message is probably more for you today. <laughs> you giggle now. <laughs> so here's what I'm asking you to do as a body, as a whole. I'm asking you to not get hung up on one part of this message. I really need you to hear the entirety of this message. Hear the whole thing before you come to your conclusion. Because if you'll do that and you won't focus on just one thing that I said and miss out on everything else, if you'll focus on the entirety of it, I promise you, you'll know the heart behind it and you'll get it by the end of this message. I don't always preach like this. If you're a guest with me or with us today, I want you to understand, I don't always preach like this, but this is necessary. And I want to preface it with this. There are no problems here in this church that I know of, that I know of, okay? There are no problems. I'm not preaching at anybody, nothing like that. But I made a promise to this church uh, when there, was just a, there were just a handful of people in the Fellowship Hall Student Center before we ever launched this church, before we ever had our first service, I looked at some people there. And one of the only people in this room, besides me and my wife, that were sitting in there was Patrick Langford. And he'll remember this. I looked at those people, just a handful of people, and I said, I will never allow sacred cows to be built in our church. And I want to stand by that. And that's one reason why we have a healthy church today. So understand, it's much easier preaching to the choir. And I want you to receive it that way. If you're a guest with us, don't think that you walked into a church that that is anticipating problems, that we're having problems, nothing like that at all. Um, You know, today is everybody's back from summer and both services are full. And, you know, as a pastor, you look at it and you go, great, everybody showed up on the day that I've got to show out, you know. So just just bear with me and, and, and let's see where God takes us with this. Can you agree to that? I say, can you agree to that? Amen. Amen. In 1940, American artist Warner Salman painted a portrait of Jesus of Nazareth. It is said to be the most famous picture of Jesus, even more so than his senior pick. (laughs) By the end of the 20th century, it had been reproduced a half a billion times. You would see this picture in large copies of it framed being hung in churches. There's some churches that still have this picture up. You would see it in 
In the back is a mural in a baptistry. Or, or maybe you would see murals painted around the church on other walls and you would see this picture. They would, they would give out small wallet-sized prayer cards bearing this image on one side and a prayer on the other side. You would see it on the front of church bulletins, uh, on clocks. Uh, for some of you, your grandmother still has this piece of wood on the wall with this picture on it and it's lacquered over it and it's hanging on her wall. This is a popular picture. Raise your hand if you've seen this picture before. Yes. This painting is said to have become the basis for the visualization of Jesus to hundreds of millions of people. This is how most people see Jesus. This painting became so popular because Jesus resembled that American next door. Blue eyes, sandy blonde hair, and white skin. So it was only fair that my black brothers and sisters would portray Jesus with a darker skin tone. And I get it. I understand that. If white people get to create Jesus in their image, why wouldn't black people get to create Jesus in their image, right? Imagine the shock on everyone's face if Jesus walked into the room and he actually looked more like this. Some of us would be scared of him. Some of us would wonder if he's a terrorist. I might as well just jump into it. I told you I was going to offend you, didn't I? It's going to get worse. It will mess with your mind to think that Jesus looked more like Osama bin Laden than Thor, the god of thunder. <laughs> Remember, you've got every opportunity to leave and you're staying, okay? You don't have to look, church, any far further than the nativity scene to realize that we have created God in our image. As the great theologian Richard Bobby once said, <laughs> I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whatever you want. His contemporary counterpart, Dr. Cal Naughton Jr., said it like this. He said, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. <laughs> Whether we choose his skin color, his convictions, his political views, we are all guilty of creating God in our image. We've got this preconceived idea of what God thinks, believes, and how he looks. And I'm afraid sometimes it hinders our relationship with God from growing in our relationship with God because we want God to be what we've created him to be. Exodus chapter 20 Next to this chapter 20, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. It's just him and God. And God is pouring into Moses the law, the law of God. This is the constitution for the Jewish nation. This is going to be the basis for what they believe, how they operate, how they do government, how they deal with one another, how they deal with God. What 
God is pouring into Moses is still in effect today for the nation of Israel. For an Orthodox Jew, they still follow most of these commands. And God was pouring into Moses. You know, some of us, we get this idea of, of what, it, what the Ten Commandments look like. And, and we see these two stone tablets. Well, there were two stone tablets. The Bible tells us that. But it wasn't just the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. I don't, I don't mean to mess with you, but God was, was writing a lot, chiseling out a lot of fine print on those stone tablets that became the law of God, also referred to as the law of Moses, the law of the nation of Israel. And so God's pouring into him, and we get to the Ten Commandments. And I just want to read just, just three verses here out of Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 3. God says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In his law, in those Ten Commandments, God said, don't make for yourself a carved image created by your hands that resembles anything on earth or anything under the sea. But the first category that God mentioned was anything that is in heaven. Don't make for yourself any carved image, anything created by you that resembles what is in heaven? What's in heaven? God. So don't make for yourself anything that resembles me. Created by your hands, by your own doing. Anything that resembles God. You know, church, there's a difference between something that is the spitting image of something and something that resembles something. I just said something a lot of times. Something. But there's a big difference between something that is the spitting image and something that resembles it. Maybe you've seen identical twins before where they're the spitting image. It's hard to tell them apart. Um, our twins, Caleb and Kendall, they look nothing alike. It's not hard to tell them apart. Plus, one's a boy, one's a girl, okay? They're not the spitting image. But sometimes people tell me that one or both of them resemble me, and other times they'll tell them that they resemble their mother. But you can certainly tell them apart from me and apart from their mother, but they resemble that. God said, I don't want you to create something by your own doing that resembles me, because there's a big difference between a spitting image and something that resembles me. I don't want you worshiping something that may resemble me because I want your worship and I'm not willing to share it with a false impersonation of me. That's what God was saying. I certainly don't agree with everything that Anne Lamont says, but she spoke some truth when she said these words. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. 
Church, it's hard to reflect the image of God when you think that God looks just like you. When you've created God to be you, when it's a resemblance of him, but it's also a resemblance of you because you want God to dress like you, cut his hair like you, walk like you, talk like you, hate like you, believe like you, and act like you. That's how we want our God. Here, here's a concept, and if I haven't offended you yet, here we go. Our God is neither Democratic nor Republican. It's a shock, isn't it? God does not reside in a red state or a blue state. God does not promote an elephant or a donkey. Our God promotes the Lamb of God because he's the only one who can take away the sins of the world. This event in the Bible that we're reading of, it, it plays out like this great TV drama. It really does. I, I, I love the imagery here. Think about it. Moses is up on Mount Sinai communicating with God. It's really a one-sided relationship because all he can do is just stand there in awe as God is just pouring into him. And he's receiving the law from God. Like I said, the constitution of the nation of Israel, he's receiving that from God. Meanwhile, at the base of the mountain, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're down there breaking the first and second commandment. But don't be too hard on these people. They actually haven't received it yet. Moses is still up on the mountain holding the, 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 the tablets, right? So he hasn't come down off the mountain yet. And, and God, who sees everything, knows exactly what's happening down below. Moses has no clue, so God actually has to like fill him in. He says, listen, we're going through this stuff, and they're already breaking commandments down there. And so I want us to look at Exodus chapter 32. I want to read the first eight verses of Exodus 32. Verse 1 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, don't miss what Aaron says here. Listen very closely. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The problem with the Israelites was that they had been raised in an Egyptian culture. I, I know this. This is very evident just by the description here. Because Aaron looks at them and he says, Bring me the golden earrings that your wives have, that your daughters have, and your sons have. Now, I want you to think about 
what we picture, what we see out of Egyptian culture. It's very rich. When you see a pharaoh, often his ears are adorned with earrings. This practice had been picked up by the Hebrews. Apparently, they're wearing gold. And, and the Bible even talks about they took some of the gold, some of the riches out of Egypt with them when they came. And so now they're putting them in their ears. They have picked up on the dress code of Egypt, and they are, are wearing some of the same things. And Aaron looks at them and, and, and says, I want you to bring it to me. I'm going to create a golden calf. And they were very, very well versed in Egyptian culture. Egyptian culture... It, it, it had a God for everything, everything. They, they had one God by the name of Ra. He was the God of the sun. Another God by the name of Geb, who was the God of the earth. And his wife was the goddess of the sky. Her name was Nut. Makes sense, right? They had another God by the name of Shu, who was the God of the air. Set, who was the God of deserts and storms. Montu, who was the God of war. The list goes on and on. The Egyptians, they had a God for everything. You stub your toe, they have a God for that. The Egyptians had gods. And the worship of these gods, these Egyptian gods, was ingrained into the minds of the Israelites. Think about it. They had been in Egypt for 430 years. All this generation knows. All that they know is Egyptian worship. They do not know anything about the worship of the God of their forefathers. Some of them have never even heard the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are going to have to be reprogrammed. They've got to get Egypt out of them before they can get to the promised land. That's probably the reason why it takes 40 years wandering in the wilderness because it probably takes 40 years and an entire generation dying off so that you get all of Egypt out of you. But they did not know what it was like to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have to be programmed. They have to be uh, open to, 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 to worshiping the true and the living God. But they knew how to worship the gods of Egypt. They knew this. It was second nature to them. They knew this. So while the cat's away, the mice will play. It actually said play in the text. The next morning, they begin to drink and play. And they want some gods to worship. They want some idols. That's what they're used to. It's, it's tangible. Put an idol in front of me. That's what I will put my attention on. I will worship that. And while Moses and the true and living God are on top of the mountain, chiseling out the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, they convince Aaron, Moses' brother, they convince him into making a golden calf for them to worship. And by the way, Aaron wants to use the golden calf, the sacred cow. He wants to use it to worship the Lord the next day. Listen to verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I went and looked it up in the original Hebrew. The word there for Lord is the word Yahweh. That's the proper name of the God of Israel. Yahweh. He specifically calls him out. Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one that brought us across the Red Sea and drowned our enemies in that sea. Tomorrow will be a feast. But, but, but 
he wants to use the sacred cow, the golden calf. He wants to use that in his worship to the true and living God. Now, now here's where we really come together. You ready? I wonder how many sacred cows that we have made all in the name of honoring and worshiping our God. I did not expect anyone to raise their hand and say, oh, that's me. But I promise you, somewhere along the way, you have made a sacred cow in worshiping and honoring your God. But not only do we do this with politics, we create religious sacred cows too. I've got this evangelist friend, and a number of years ago, he was preaching on the West Coast of the United States, and he was in California. And he shows up at this church to preach. He's got the night service, and the pastor pulls him aside, and he says, hey, brother, he said, I'm glad you're here. I want you to be led by the Holy Spirit. I want you to be used by God. But he said, whatever you do, do not make mention during your sermon of that mural that's in the baptistry. And the evangelist just kind of looked at him, and he said, okay, I, I think I can handle that, but can I ask why? He said, yes. He says, it's caused us a lot of problems. This is a true story. He says, it's caused us a lot of problems. He said, you see, if you look real closely of that mural in the baptistry of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, you will notice that Adam has a belly button. And he says, some lady in our church was completely offended by that, and she got a group of people to jump on board with her. And he said, they started petitioning me and, and petitioning the board because Adam was not born of a woman. He did not have a belly button because he did not have an umbilical cord. And he said there was a church split. People left the church because Adam had a belly button. True story. People left the church because Adam had a belly button. Do you really think that God cared on whether or not the mural and the baptistry was anatomically correct? Do you think that is what God is really concerned with? Sometimes I wonder if that's our mentality, that these petty things like that, that bring such a sharp division between church members. Again, we don't have those problems here, but you've seen it. And if we allowed the enemy to, he would come in and he would do that here. Is that really what God's concerned with on whether or not Adam had a belly button? Because within a five square mile radius around that church, thousands of people were dying and going to hell. But bless God, we're going to make sure that Adam does or doesn't have a belly button. And let me tell you what that does. It's, it's worshiping the sacred cow of petty opinions. You know what they say about opinions. The staff and I, we read a book last year called Who Moved My Pulpit. It's a leadership book for church leaders called Who Moved My Pulpit by Tom Rainer. In the first chapter of this book, it tells the story of a pastor named Derek in the, in the Midwest. The church where Pastor Derek was pastoring ran about 250 people. He had been there for about eight years. He did not plant the church. The church was well established when he came on board. But for the eight years that, that he had been there, um, it, it had been a great run for him. The church had grown. And his preaching style when he first got there, he was, he was a little bit more fiery, you know, more of the, the shouter, the screamer. And, and, uh, and, and so he noticed that his preaching style changed um, throughout that eight years. And, and suddenly he found himself more as, as a teacher type preacher. That's, that's how he was ministering to his church. And what happened, he started reaching millennials. And so millennials started moving into his church. Well, pleasantly surprised that the 
older congregation in the church, the ones that were already there and, and established in that church, they welcomed the new preaching style also. So after he'd been there for eight years and they had had this significant change in the preaching style, he wanted to connect more with his audience. He wanted to connect more with his congregation. And he felt like the big wooden pulpit that was right there in the middle of the stage that probably had not been moved or even vacuumed under in years, he felt like it was this big wooden distraction between him and, and, and his audience. It was a big barrier. And so one Friday afternoon, he calls a couple of the custodians in and he gets them to move the pulpit off the stage into a back room. He replaces it with this small lectern that you could hardly see. The next Sunday morning, he walks in and he was so naive. He was so naive, he didn't even see the pockets of people around the congregation that were having conversations about him. He preached his sermon, didn't have much of a, of a response. At the end of service, he was still naive. He did not see the pockets of people having conversation, pointing to the stage. By 4.30 that day, the emails had started rolling in. People upset because the pastor moved the pulpit, the sacred cow that was sitting on the stage. One of the emails that he got that day was from a 70-year-old church member that went right at the pastor. I mean, no apologies, here, here I come. And here's what that 70-year-old member said in their email. Said, what you have done is heretical. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. I think we need to call for a vote of confidence about you. The next week was followed with more emails, many meetings, and even phone calls. Pastor Derek had to, had to log off of Facebook because he was on blast constantly. They were just attacking him. The, the next Sunday, he had planned to walk in, not change back to the pulpit, but he was going to, to own it a little bit and, and apologize for not consulting some of them and explain why he had made the change. But to his surprise, when he walked into the sanctuary, he looked up on the platform and church members had already moved his little lectern and put the pulpit right back in its place. Pastor Derek said this. He said the next two years of ministry were ruined for our church. He said they eventually bounced back, but for two years, momentum and effective ministry were lost because they were stuck dealing with a sacred cow, the aftermath, because the pastor moved the pulpit and the members moved it back. We create our sacred cows all in the name of worship. And we may not be bowing down to worship Egyptian gods, but if we're not careful... We certainly create these sacred cows that hinder us from our walk with God. Sacred cows in a church can be something as simple as assigned seating. Last year, there's a group of people from our church that visited another church. I was there that night, and I, I watched it happen as two of our, of our high school students were sitting there on a row, minding their own business, being, being good. It was before service, just sitting there, just talking. When two members of that local church, I did not know them, but they walked in, looked at these two high school students and said, you're sitting in our chairs, move. And I watched those two students have to get up and move, guests in that church, but they were asked to move. Sacred cows can be as simple as assigned seating in a church or as complicated as theological differences. And I may get in trouble for this, but I'm, I've already dug the hole so deep, who cares, right? There's going to be like 12 of you here next Sunday, but it's all right. I don't care if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, or post-trib rapture. Got my own opinion of it. Don't even care to debate it with you. And if you don't know what any of that means, thank God. 
I don't care if you believe in eternal security or conditional security. Got my own opinion on that. I believe I've got scripture to back it up, but I don't feel like splitting hairs over something like that. If you call on the name of Jesus, you shall be saved. Honestly, I don't care to argue with anyone on whether or not spiritual gifts remain in the church or if they have ceased. I've got my own opinion on that. Sometimes I even preach it because I believe I've got enough, spirit, uh, uh, enough scriptural content to, to pour into that. But you know what? It's not going to cause me to be in division with you or with any other church or with any other denomination. It's just not worth it to me because there's people that are going to hell and it's up to us to put a roadblock on the way to hell and get them out of there. Why do we want to split hairs on this stuff? Church, I believe that the church in general has become so opinionated that we have created God into what we want him to look like. There's a photographer by the name of Ansel Adams, and and he once said these amazing words. He said, there is nothing worse than a sharp image of a fuzzy concept. And sometimes we build doctrine out of personal convictions. And that's nothing more than a sharp image of a fuzzy concept. If you don't have absolute scripture and word of God to back it up, receive that as the Holy Spirit got in your life and don't try and push it on anybody else. What we need to do is get over our egotistical mindsets and let God make us into his image and not the other way around. I, I, I really believe God's tired of us making him into our image. I want you to look at somebody and say these words. Say, God looks good on you. God looks good on you. You on him, not so much, but God looks good on you. I want to shift gears here just for a moment as I begin to close this out. It's not just staunch Christians with a rigid legalistic mindset. That's definitely one way that we try and create God in our image. But the other end of the spectrum, we also create God in our image when we want to believe that God is carefree with no convictions. That's not the picture of a holy God. Carefree with no convictions, that's a hippie. You can't live without convictions and look like the image of God at the same time. And so, church, if your life looks just like it did before you found Jesus, if there have been no lifestyle changes at all, chances are you are trying to make God into your image. The Holy Spirit's convicting someone right now. I feel it. There has to be change. He is saving you. He is changing your direction. There must be change when you find salvation in Jesus Christ. If your friends and your family members, if they don't see change in you after you give your heart to Jesus, after you make him Lord of your life, then you are creating God in your image. And you've got got the roles reversed there. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
That means when you submit to Christ as Lord of your life, there are old things, old habits, old ways, and old lifestyle that has to be put away, and the new comes. It's just as dangerous as the sacred cows that we create. Don't try and recreate God in your image. Galatians 2 and 20 says, I, say I, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If Christ is in you, you are not big enough to contain that. It has to come out of you. So stop trying to, to make Christ conform to you. Let your mind be renewed, transformed by the renewing of our minds. This has to happen in a believer's life. Both ends of the spectrum are dangerous. Both ends say, God, I'm not satisfied with who you are, and I want to make you look more like me. Let me tell you, if God looks anything like Rocky McKinley, we're in trouble. He probably has my beard. But other than that, we're in trouble. Regardless, if your sacred cow is a legalistic mindset or a lawless mentality that you'll do whatever you want to do, be careful not to create God in your own image because his desire is to create you in his image. That's his desire from day one. We read it in Genesis 1 last week. He created them, both male and female, in his image. That's what he desires for us. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.